Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. Great to have you with us. I'm Erica Hill in tonight for Allison Camrata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We have much more on the biggest story of this night, the Supreme Court, of course, protecting access to a widely used abortion drug by freezing lower court rulings that restricted its usage. It's a big victory for the Biden administration. It is far from the end, though. The ruling means the appeals process now will play out, and it is almost guaranteed the case will eventually land back before the justices. In the meantime, though, the FDA approval of mefepristone stands, as does current access. Plus, turmoil in the NFL tonight. Three players suspended indefinitely. Two others slapped with a six-game ban. So what they do is the punishment fair. And it wouldn't be a Friday night here without a news quiz. See if you know more about what happened this week than our distinguished panelists. Here is my panel tonight. Defense attorney Misty Merritt, John Ablon, our senior political analyst, former Democratic Congressman Max Rose, Jessica Washington from The Root, and joining us, Republican strategist and pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson, We do begin, though, this hour with CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider. So, Jessica, take us through, in terms of the court's ruling, what does it do? Well, this is definitely a relief, Erica, tonight for possible patients, doctors, drug manufacturers, the FDA, the Biden administration, all were worried about the potential fallout here. But in the end, the Supreme Court did step in tonight to protect full access to the abortion pill, mifepristone, while this appeals process plays out. So what does it mean? Well, it means status quo for the administration of mifepristone. That means women can continue to take it up to 10 weeks pregnant. They can continue to receive it by mail and via telehealth visits with their health care providers, and the generic version will still continue to be widely available. So this is actually exactly what the Biden administration, the FDA, what they were asking for and pushing for. In fact, they warned that if those restrictions were imposed on the drug at this point, there would just be chaos and confusion. So now all of that has been avoided. And Erica, the appeals process will start playing out in the Fifth Circuit Court in New Orleans with briefs next week and then oral arguments in less than a month on May 17th. So as that whole process begins to play out, when we look at what we heard this evening from the Supreme Court, Justices Thomas and Alito publicly dissenting on this ruling, uh, what more did they say? So they were the only two justices who noted their dissents, but because of the way this order is structured, we actually don't know exactly how the other seven justices voted. If there were other dissents, only that five justices were needed to grant this stay, which, of course, they got. But Justice Alito did write that four-page dissent, and in it, he makes some arguments. He says, you know, the Supreme Court has previously been criticized for granting these types of stays, you know, these holds on lower court decisions. So he's asking, why, fellow justices, are you willing to grant a stay now in these circumstances, especially because he's arguing there would not be any harm, in his words, if they let these restrictions go into effect. So he wrote this. At present, applicants are not entitled to a stay because they have not shown that they are likely to suffer irreparable harm 
in the interim. But what's really interesting here, Erica, is that the FDA made a big argument that there would be major harm if these restrictions went into effect, with women not being able to fully access the drug, the chaos they said in the way that the changes would be made to the way it was administered. But Justice Alito sort of disputing that that would actually happen. He said at one point the FDA could just choose not to enforce those restrictions if they had taken effect. So really um, a big dissent from Justice Alito with four pages of writing. And that might have been what took a little bit long to get this final decision here. Erica? Jessica, appreciate it. Thank you. Lots to discuss here with my panel. Missy, I'm going to start with you. I saw you nodding a mm-hmm. couple of points during Jessica's last answer there. Um, you know, as she as she noted, I was struck when she said, you know, Justice Alito at one point saying, well, the FDA could just choose not to. They can just continue a status quo. I mean, really? Yeah. So it's interesting. So first of all, that's the standard for any stay. It's likelihood of success Mm -hmm. on the underlying merits of the case and irreparable harm. And that's what someone has to show. A party has to show that in order to get a stay. The reason that he's saying that is because there's a huge question mark about whether or not a regulatory agency can actually be have something reversed by a court. So there's a whole school of arguments about the power of a federal agency and whether or not they're actually subject to that jurisdiction and whether a court could intervene. And so that's where that comes in. But I agree with this decision. I'm not surprised that this is what happened. There would have been chaos just in the sense of, well, now what does this mean for any other pharmaceutical on the market? Can a court come in and say the FDA doesn't have the right to approve and we can reverse it if we don't agree? It would not have been good. It would have set a crazy precedent and it would have actually impacted other regulatory agencies. And that's certainly been one of the questions. If that had happened, right, what would the fallout be? What FDA approved medications would be next? John, you say this is the right decision. Now we're to watch this play out, though, for some time. Which is appropriate because that's the process. The problem was that the process was completely overturned uh, by a judge who seemed to be acting for ideological reasons unrelated to precedent or the process of expertise set up by the FDA. Um, This is the problem with politicizing our courts. You get decisions like this that have meaningful impacts on people's lives and can throw Total, you know, the, the, this, you know, people's lives into chaos. I don't, you know, what Alito's saying about no harm is 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 a bit of a head scratcher. But be that as it may, this is a the sensible thing to do. It will go forward. But the precedent stems from the fundamental problem of the politicization of our courts. What's interesting is is the change, I would say, in messaging that we have seen. It's been far more forceful from the Biden administration. They have really put Vice President Harris out there on this over the last couple of weeks. How effective has she been as a messenger, and do you anticipate this is her role moving forward? Well, it should be, and I think that she's been extraordinarily effective. Of course, the Biden administration has been searching for what exactly her role can and should be. And I have to say, you know, as a Democrat, I'm very thankful that they finally put her in a role that she can succeed at. That's not a judgment of her capabilities. That's a judgment of them being strategic. Previously, they said, well, you're going to go to space and then you're going to solve the border. And they set her up to fail. Now, this is exactly where the Democratic Party needs a strong messenger. And she is that. She's mm-hmm. demonstrated that over and over again. And this is the winning issue for the Democratic Party and It has to continue to hammer at home, beginning with the president's campaign. How has the conversation changed at this point, do you think? Yeah. Because because of just what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is definitely something that people are paying more and more attention to. I mean, after kind of the fall of Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision, I mean, that changed everything, right? But this, again, is kind of putting it back into the headlines. People are talking about the fact that this is a drug that has been approved by the FDA for 23 years. It is the most effective regimen when combined with misoprostol that we have in the United States to carry out self-medicated abortions. And so I think people are really looking at this and they're saying it doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. to try and get rid of mifepristone and kind of thinking about how I ideological this war has become. Kristen, uh, you were saying that this is a, a bit of a sigh of relief for Republicans. Why? Taking this out of the headlines and turning the temperature down, the Supreme Court making this ruling is in some ways pushing back against this idea that the court is just a political arm of the Republican Party. It's made a statement to say, look, let's all take a breath and let's let the process play out. And that's probably a good thing for questions about the legitimacy of the court, et cetera. But also the more this is in the headlines, the more political peril I think Republicans have faced. You know, if you think back to a Supreme Court ruling uh, around something like gay marriage, when they decided the Obergefell case, um, that was something that took a political hot button and it took it off the table. It said the Supreme Court's made a ruling and no longer were Republicans really getting asked the same kinds of questions as often about, well, what do you define as marriage, et cetera. In this case, with the fall of Roe versus Wade, with its overturning in the Dobbs case, it put abortion back on the political agenda. And Republicans, in my view, have been pretty flat-footed in their messaging on this. So every new headline about abortion is bringing more potential political peril to Republicans as long as they don't have their act together on this. So it may be out of the headlines for, for a little while. Misty, give us a sense. Is there a timeline in terms of this appeals process? What are we looking at? So this particular case is expedited. We're going to hear those arguments on May 17th. So that's really quick. But that's just the beginning. There's other cases that are working their way up. And to the extent that different federal courts come out on the issue in different ways, well, that's a circuit split. That brings the issue back to the Supreme Court, ultimately, to make really novel decisions. Number one, the FDA's power, Mm -hmm. whether or not a court can reverse it, whether or not states can actually limit the use after the FDA has said, well, we think it's okay to dispense it this way. Can states take that action? Is there a federal preemption issue? There are so many novel legal issues that are coming out of the Dobbs decision, especially in a world where we can get medication and we do en masse get medication through the mail, commerce issues, so much. So I don't think we're even 1% to where we're going to be to get some clarity on these issues. But the first case, we're going to know pretty soon where that lands on uh, around May 17th. And so it's interesting, too, Kristen, to your point, in terms of taking some of this out of the headlines, because, it, you know, using your words there, you feel Republicans have been sort of flat-footed. And we've seen that just in the response or even lack of response to a number of questions. I think Senator Tim Scott is a great example there. It's not going to go away because we are going to see more activity in the courts and not just when we're talking about this appeal. Well, certainly. And you're also going to see this play out in the Republican primary. Right now, you have this this really interesting dynamic where uh, some candidates like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are kind of trying to outflank Donald Trump on the right on a host of things, abortion now being one of them. And whether that's a smart strategy to try to peel off Trump's most ardent supporters or whether that jeopardizes somebody like Ron DeSantis' claim to be a more electable candidate in the Republican primary, I think that's a really interesting gamble. And we'll know soon enough how that turns out. Yeah. And as we're watching, it'll be interesting, Jessica, I think, too, and maybe you're starting to see this in your reporting, how that conversation will change. You talked about how effective you think Kamala Harris is as a messenger here. It'll be interesting to see if Democrats as a whole, not always their strong suit, Max, 
to come with a united message to see if that changes. Yeah, I think abortion has been something which, for the most part, Democrats have had a pretty united message on and a pretty strong message. Not all Democrats, obviously, but most, for the most part, have had a pretty strong messaging on this. So I do think this is one of the strongest issues. And we will likely see that going into kind of the presidential race as well, that this is an issue they can come out on, they can be strong about, and they don't have to kind of quibble around the edges like Republicans do on this issue because they know it's unpopular. The strongest. Yeah, we'll be watching all of it. Um, Just ahead here, it's been a traumatic week when it comes to wrong place, wrong time shootings. We're talking about ringing the wrong doorbell, pulling into the wrong driveway, losing a basketball in a neighbor's yard. Americans are living in fear that perhaps the next innocent mistake could lead to them getting shot. So what is happening in this country? Why is violence seeming the answer? And how do we calm things down? Uh, this week, it feels like we have been covering shootings on a nonstop loop. All of these victims, all young people, they were just really in the wrong place at the wrong time. Easy access to guns, is that part of the problem? The Louisville bank shooter left notes claiming that he wanted to show just how easy it is in America for someone dealing with a serious mental health issue to go out and buy an assault weapon. Back now with my panel and joining us, former professional tennis player Patrick McEnroe. Good to have all of you with us. This is part of the conversation that I had with my kids this week, a couple of teenagers as we're looking at this. And the question was, why is the answer to reach for a gun? Where are we at in this country? Is it a level of fear? Mm -hmm. So you have fear, full stop. Fear, lack of trust, and and an abundance of weapons um, that, you know, aren't simply, you know, hunting rifles. Um, You know, one of these studies that just came out said during the pandemic, Americans bought 60 million new guns. Mm -hmm. And it was predominantly people who owned firearms previously. But you did that because of a feeling of fear. And it wasn't just rising crime. It was this sort of raw sense that I need to defend myself. But when the shootings that we're covering this week um, are people who have a hair trigger because they sense a threat when there is objectively, in many cases, when, you know, there's no evident threat. And that's about lack of trust and fear combined with easy access to guns. So how do you then look at the fear? Because the fear goes both ways, right? So then there's the fear of any time I go to get in the wrong car in the parking lot. I've done that. Who hasn't done that? I've driven up the wrong driveway. Then do I have to worry that I'm going to get shot? It's a vicious cycle. I wish it was as simple that it's just fear. And I think that plays a part. But if it's much more than that, it's culture. In the yeah. United States of America today, we, we there, there's so many different communities with this strong culture of gun ownership and self-reliance that often translates in moments of heightened emotion or heightened fear to the use of a gun for violence. You know, we are the only nation in the world with this level of this problem. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of separate everything out. It's a policy issue that allows for this pervasiveness of guns. And that's what has to be addressed head on. What is so disappointing is that after each and every one of these uh, events, Mm -hmm. there's a conversation, there's a debate, there's marches, and then they nibble at the edges talking about a a red flag law saying that should it be a question that someone that's mentally ill can get access to a gun? That shouldn't even be a question, but we should have things like universal background checks. We should get at the core root of the problem here, which is that we have hundreds of millions of guns in our streets. Well, 400 million to be exact, which is more than, more than we the have population. people. And yeah. the fact of the matter is that we've lost it. 
I mean, we've totally lost our minds. And even even now, I mean, don't you all, when you go, if you're in your car and, and you know, you, you, someone cuts you off and it used to be like, you know, I'd honk at them or I'd say, hey, you idiot. I don't even like consider doing that now. It's true. I don't even consider doing that because I'm like, you know what? Someone just could just pull out a gun. You're falling I mean, into the whole armed society is a polite society argument. There, no, aren't but, you? but well, the more guns, you just keep buying more guns. Yeah. So everyone's just you know getting more armed because they're trying to protect themselves, so they think. That's right. And thinking that this is going to somehow alleviate the problem when obviously it's just making it considerably worse. We talk about what the discussions are right after every shooting. Um, I, you know, I've covered far too many mass shootings. Um, and you think about that conversation. I remember being in Sandy Hook and afterwards, the conversation was, well, this could never happen again. We're talking about first graders. Mm-hmm. You look at Uvalde, you look at everything that has happened since. What is amazing, though, we have numbers, too, when it comes to children. So gun deaths among U.S. children increased 50 percent between 2019 and 2021. If children are not going to spur action, Jessica, is there anything that you've seen that will? I think that's what really scares me. You know, we have seen these, you know, mass shootings of children, but then also most of these gun deaths of children are happening in homes mm-hmm. with unlo- with weapons that are unlocked and available for children to access and potentially hurt themselves with, which is actually where we're seeing most of the gun deaths among children. I think that's what really scares me is just that we keep having these situations where children are dying on a, you know, on a very regular basis and we haven't done anything. And so I'd love to tell you right now, I think, you know, this is going to happen one more time and we're going to do something, but that just hasn't been the reality that I've witnessed. No, look, it, 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 it breaks your heart and it makes you sick. But after Sandy Hook, of course, there was 90% support across partisan lines for closing background checks, you know, increasing background check, closing the gun show loophole. And the NRA lobbied against it, and nothing happened. Now, we had some action in Congress, and red flag law is not nothing, right? It's a step mm-hmm. in the right direction. But the fundamental problem remains that onion headline that they air every time after every mass mm. shooting. There's nothing we can do, says Nation, that's the only one in the world where this happens. It's so, it's so interesting to bring that up. And, and also, not only that onion headline, which is honestly so important, but the fact that there have been some in, incremental, there has been some incremental movement. And I even think back to the settlement that Sandy Hook, some of the Sandy Hook families mm-hmm. had when it came to the way yeah. these rifles were being advertised and who they were being marketed to. That's an important step. No, it's absolutely an important step, but at this point, we can't imagine the United States Senate passing something like an assault weapon ban that in a manner that's filibuster-proof. It has Mm -hmm. to get to over 60 votes or more. We can't imagine a Senate right now in its current composition uh, passing universal background checks. And what's striking here is that this is not something that can be solved with local policy. Mm -hmm. The vast majority, take New York City, for instance, the vast majority of gun instances in New York City involve weapons that originated from out of state. It's called Mm -hmm. the Iron Pipeline. Mm -hmm. Flows from states with extraordinarily lax gun laws. There's even this little tiny bill called the T-Heart Amendment, which denies local law enforcement from getting access to gun crime trace data. So the NYPD can't even know uh, about the criminal gun dealers who are selling massive amounts of weapons to straw purchasers. The entire federal code in relation to gun violence and weapons sales is built in support of the gun lobby, not public safety. Well, if that's not sobering, I don't know what is. Uh, We're going to leave this discussion now. We do have much more to talk about, though. NFL players caught betting on games. The consequences they're now facing. That's next. 
The NFL announcing the suspension of five players for gambling. Now, three of them suspended indefinitely for gambling on NFL games in the 22 season. Not games they were playing in, but NFL games. Two others were suspended for the first six regular games for other gambling policy violations. The NFL saying in a statement, the gambling policy, which is annually reviewed with all NFL personnel, including players, prohibits anyone in the NFL from engaging in any form of gambling in any club or league facility or venue, including the practice facility. A league review uncovered no evidence indicating any inside information was used or that any game was compromised in any way. Back now with our panel, I'm going to go to the athlete on the panel, Mr. McEnroe. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a feeling. Um, you knew you were yeah. going to be up first. Yeah. If you had bet on that, you would have won. Oh, <laughs> no. Look at the smile I, on I your face. I have to say, yeah. I saw this and I thought, well, yeah. I mean, if you know the rules, of course you know what's going to happen. Is there, is there a surprise, though, at all that it is happening? No, there's not a surprise, although these players are obviously going to pay a hefty price. But let, let me give you all a little bit of a history lesson here, okay? Baseball, of course, was the American pastime. And then in the you know, 50s, 60s, as television started to take over in sports, the NFL got in front of that. So by the early 70s, the NFL became the biggest sport in America. And it's only continued in the last 50 years. It's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And one of the main reasons it's as big as it is today is... Gambling? You nailed it. Hey. Gambling. Right. Okay, but it, so, the, so they, meaning the NFL, like all sports, they have to inte- protect the integrity of the actual game that you as a fan mm-hmm. are watching when you're watching it every Sunday. Now, you know, pretty much every day of the week, you can watch the NFL. Um, so they have to come down extremely hard on these players, even the two players that were betting on something else. Betting is like become the new American pastime to me. I mean, betting is everywhere, whether it's in sports, whether it's casinos. I mean, you name it. Betting is, I mean, I consider it like an epidemic because yeah. it's just insane how much people bet mm-hmm. but and how big the industry itself is. And the NFL is playing right along into that. And it's one of the reasons why it's to be a myth that it is. So when you look at this, Max, you said you were going to, you were going to bet on this panel. Um, when you look, we made what, them laugh. What is the bet, yeah. what is the bet yeah. on the gotcha. panel? One. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when we look at betting overall, then you look at how much yeah. happens with football, where does this end up? Does the NFL have to change any of these regulations? Because, again, they weren't betting on the games that they were playing it. They weren't trying to throw the games. That's, that's the thing. This is the stupidest policy. <laughs> and, 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 of course, this is near and dear to my heart because my uncle, Pete Rose, paid a very significant uh, price for this. I'm just kidding. I was about to say. I was like, wait a minute. You got all of us for a second. I almost had you. You did? But this is beyond idiotic and they didn't bet on the game they were playing in, uh-huh. right? They didn't bet against themselves uh-huh. or anything to that effect. And this notion that betting is something new is also patently absurd. It's just only recently become legalized. And I'll tell you, let's do it even more because that produces amazing tax revenue for our schools, amazing tax revenue for infrastructure. And I'll it's take that, doing any, that 
I wait will a take that wait a any second. day of Hold the on week. Hold on a second. Are you saying that these middle players, class tax these players should be able to bet on anything? What planet are you on? You can't allow the players to just bet on anything they want. This is the all-drug Olympics. I'm in a tennis tournament. I know which players are a little bit dinged up or a little bit injured. So I could just – no, you can't let that happen. Righteous indignation at sports – Insider trading? Who cares? What but the, so the two, just you were asking about yeah, two players who didn't bet there on NFL two, games, they so they, they were at they, a facility, essentially. They were, they were at yeah. their own facility, and they were betting on something else, you know, likely from their phone, you know, placing yeah. bets. Yeah, I mean, do we think that's a serious? That's not a serious. That's not a serious, yeah, so it's but, not a serious. But they have to lay down the law, the NFL, because they have to get the attention of the players, because if anything ever did happen where they were betting – on their own team or for the other oh. team, for example. It, it, that's also don't want it, the, the NFL, I would imagine, um, you know, they may be used to headlines that are perhaps not favorable to the league <laughs> and how things are handled. However, you don't want another one coming back on you, right? Which is why you do have to crack down on this. But there's the concern, too, about is there too much gambling in general? Well, Yes, and it also you not know, according sort of to steals, this one. Well, <laughs> Ma- Ma- Max Rose's you know, sort of you know all drug Olympic scenario where players should be betting on their own teams is 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 like a glide path to hell. But um, but look, you know the standard he mentioned, Pete Rose. Th- that's the standard that makes sense to folks. You know, or or it's the it's the it's the Black Sox scandal. You know, betting on a, a game you're playing in, your team is playing in, or, or throwing a game. That that's the bright line. Um, betting in the NFL, okay, fine, indefinite suspension. But two guys who were just betting from from a practice facility, I mean, on apparently something else, mm-hmm. that 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 is not within the realm of common sense. It seems to me. Yeah, and it also feels there's something weird about it when you have the NFL promoting gambling to the extent that they are, and then they're fueling this massive industry, and then you have two players who, for kind of what it sounds like, they're sitting in the facility, they're gambling on their phone. They shouldn't have been doing it. They weren't doing anything related to the game. I'm not saying that they shouldn't, you know, face any kind of consequences, but I can understand why it might feel somewhat like there's a little bit of hypocrisy almost going on. Mm-hmm. There. It is interesting too when you look at when you talk about the advertising. You talk. I mean, you, it is everywhere during every game. And so it is hard to ignore, especially with a lot of these online, you know, these online sites or these apps on which you can gamble, it fuels so much of their funding. It's it's, it's totally out of control, okay? But there are are positives to it because, like you said, it's a huge revenue driver for the sport and for all these betting, the the entire betting industry. And Jessica is 100% right. The hypocrisy is there. But as a player, okay, as an ex-professional player, you have to just play by those rules. You can't be that dumb. I understand it's, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. They were betting, a, don't be doing it from the facility. I mean, it's pretty I simple. I have to say, I'm with you. If you know the rules and I mean, you break the on, rules, I have on. very little you're patience a, you're, for you're, like... You're, stupid rules you, are meant to be broken. But I will say this, though. The, if the NFL were able to move with this sense of purpose and urgency in and around the racial discrimination suits against them right now. They'd be in a much better place as an organization, but no, suddenly they know how to move so swiftly and so quickly when a couple of players make a $30 bet on a game that they're not even involved in, it's ridiculous. I would say that's a pretty good point. We're going to end on that one. $35 parlay, by the way. Okay, so we're going to leave the parlays behind because we have have much much bigger purse here that we're talking about. 15 million people... All of it gone in a flash-ish. The very real heist that seems like it is straight out of a movie. You're going to want to hear about this one next. 
favorite story of the night. Oh, we're pulling out notes for it over there. More than $15 million worth of gold bars and other valuables disappeared, vanished from a holding facility at Toronto's airport on Monday. Police still trying to figure out what happened. Who's the mastermind behind the heist? And it had us all thinking it sounds a little bit like a movie, doesn't it? The 3,000 block of Las Vegas Boulevard, otherwise known as the Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM Grand. Together, they're three of the most profitable casinos in Las Vegas. Let me see. This is the vault at the Bellagio. It's located below the strip, beneath 200 feet of solid earth. It safeguards every dime that passes through each of the three casinos above it. And we're going to rob it. Smash and grab job, huh? Slightly more complicated than that. Ah, a little Ocean's Eleven on a Friday. Who doesn't love that? My panel of detectives in training here to try to crack the case. So here's the deal. If, let's say, George Clooney, not available, we tried to get him. Oddly enough, didn't take my call. George Clooney, not available. Who are you calling in to plan your heist? You get to go first on this one. Ladies Ooh. first. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. I don't know if I have a good heist planner. <laughs> I wasn't prepared. I don't know. Uh, gosh, yeah, I'm going to have to toss this one around. Oh, no. Does anyone have any good? <laughs> yes. I mean, I guess if George Clooney's around, no, yeah. Obviously, Robert De Niro, Jimmy, and Goodfellas, and the Lufthansa heist. That's the movie clip we should have played. Go. This is the Lufthansa heist. little Henry Hill. Yeah, man. Uh, okay, I'm, so oh, you've got... I'm, I'm, I'm Brad Pitt. I'm going Brad Pitt. I could get behind really? that choice. Yeah, I like Brad Pitt. I'm okay with that yeah. one. In all seriousness, really? when you look at this, so it disappears, right? There's this massive container. It is gone. Toronto Airport is huge. Just to put it in sort of Canadian terms, our producers <laughs> found that the Toronto Pearson Airport is equivalent to 12,500 hockey arenas. Ooh, How about yeah. that? That's a great This is a big one. space, right? Uh, yeah. Things are coming in. People know things are coming in. It disappears. Inside job, no? Without mm-hmm. a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, when you see that Toronto airport worker rolling up in a Ferrari, yeah. we know exactly who. We know. But look, this is a great, it's a great payday for for somebody. I'm amazed though. It was a Canadian that pulled it off. I mean, they're they're so but we don't they're, know. they're so polite. I mean, they are very polite. This yeah. was yeah, no, it's, Listen, it's obviously a this, Canadian this, airport worker. This is was, almost as big, okay, as the great. Canadian maple, <gasps> maple syrup. right. It was about $20 million worth of about 3,000 tons of the best maple what? syrup around. And this liquid one. Liquid gold. That's what I that mean, is. Liquid gold. This one tea. is measuring up to that. It is measuring up to that. <laughs> what I find remarkable is even if you walk off with these gold bars or whatever, I keep wanting to say gold doubloons, even though it's not a pirate <laughs> yeah. heist. How are you getting rid of those? Is this like stolen art? Clearly, I don't do a lot of major heists. Is it like stolen art that it's just a black market thing and you want to show it to your uh, people when they come over to your house? You can't really. Can you sell it? How traceable is it? Uh, I'm nervous about showing too much like that. <laughs> 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 should be very aware. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you in your I, you know, I, I think very clearly you could melt it. Down yeah, and do, right. and do do something to to that effect. I mean, we we obviously have a hustle that we have. To I, talk no, about I mean, you know, uh, you're, you're the one praising the guy for a good payday. Thank God they didn't bet on football. I, or that's like true. That. Yeah. 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 We beat that one. We, already, we, we, yeah. we, beat, we beat that one down. All right. I find it very interesting, though, on a somewhat serious note, that all the Canadian authorities are like, "Oh, we can't tell you. We're not sure where it came from." Hmm. What type of plane, what airline was carrying it? It all sounds 
very sketchy, very fishy to me. This actually could be a movie, I think. It could be, right. And is there video? Where is the video? Why don't we know it? They they didn't really want to talk about it, full stop. Mm -hmm. Really did not want to be addressing it. That raises a lot of questions. If anyone believes this wasn't an inside job, you know, tell me Epstein committed suicide as well. I mean, this is this is this is just I mean, this is just crazy. No, I mean, we're almost at eleven. But no, in in all in in all seriousness, come on. I mean, this was so clearly an inside job. Yeah. And often, though, what I would say in cases like this, which involve massive institutional failure. you're going to see the news cycle very quickly or they'll make an effort to have the news cycle move on very, very quickly. So I, I would expect that, that we won't hear much of this until no. the movie comes out. I want to get one of the out. podcast people on it. Like, yeah. I don't know, That's some of those, idea. like, I don't, it's not the true crime exactly. Those are a little dark, but, like, the kind of true crime adjacent, like a scam goddess, like something like that. I want one of those podcasters to get really into it. Like, the documentary can come after, but yeah. we need to get one of the podcasts. We might need to put it. you on it. I'm on it. Oh, yeah. This is going to be a movie, and, and and you know I think Canadian mob movies are underrepresented. Yeah, that's, that's a real opportunity. How many, here. how many are there? Do you have a top ten list? Uh, I'm going to go <laughs> zero. Yeah. Right. None. Maybe yeah. Was the opening scene? I don't know. Remake. I just, just want to know who decided to put all these particular goods into one container. I agree. That's what I'd like to find mm-hmm. out. I you know I space mine out, especially yeah. when I'm traveling. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, what if you lose one container? There goes your fifteen million. Unless it's a double scam. The worst. Yeah. Unless it's double scam. Oh, what oh. if it was insured and then someone Ooh. stole it from themselves? Ooh, you know, we don't know. I hate. I mean, this is a real crime. So maybe I should make a conspiracy theory. Sadly, we are out of time. But keep your ideas flowing because Jessica has a podcast coming up and she's working on a script. There's a little twist in the movie. Stay with us. We'll be right back. President Biden wants environmental justice to be the mission of the entire U.S. government, announcing a new executive order today, creating an Office of Environmental Justice and requiring every federal agency take into account how pollution impacts the health of all people with an emphasis on disadvantaged communities. We will include communities that have been denied basic security, basic dignity that comes from clean air, having clean air, clean water, and clean energy jobs and environmental justice. We vowed to take action on the most ambitious climate environmental justice agenda in American history. And that's exactly what we did. Joining me now is CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. So this is one idea, Bill, obviously, to tackle the impacts of climate change. You found a, a lot of other ideas, really innovative approaches to, in your words, unscrew the planet, <laughs> which is the focus of, of your of your reporting this Sunday night on yeah. the whole story. I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea, and I love the title. Thank you. Yeah, it was sort of the future is screwed if you listen to the evidence and the, and the predictions. And I wondered, how many people does it take to unscrew a planet? And it turns out 8 billion of us oh. in, in every various, various different ways. But I wanted to talk to the real dreamers, the Thomas Edisons who are out there with the boldest ideas And I met a guy who made a fortune uh, in software and then said, you know what, I'm going to tackle this problem and started a company called Charm. And I got to look, it's sort of like a glimpse inside uh, the Model A factory, the beginning of a whole new trillion dollar industry. Take a listen. You're part of the, the movement to basically build the oil industry in reverse. That's right. After making a killing in software and becoming frustrated with carbon offsets, Peter Reinhardt helped found Charm. So this over here is the, is the pyrolyzer. 
a startup that scoops up the organic waste usually left to rot in farm fields, heats it into biochar, which improves soil health, and bio-oil, which he injects down into old oil wells. How much have you injected to date? We've sequestered about 5,450 tons of CO2 equivalent. That is a drop in the bucket, right, compared to the 50 billion tons a year that we're emitting as a, as a civilization. Confirming Peter's claim independently is tough because carbon removal verification is also brand new. But if he's right, his teeny drop in the bucket would be about half of all the carbon ever removed. No offense, this is awesome, but, but it's a couple of containers in a parking lot in San Francisco, and we were in Iceland and saw what's there, and that's it in the whole world? Should I be depressed by that, or? Or you could view it as an opportunity. I guess. You want to start a carbon removal business? <laughs> Wait, are we going to lose you as our chief climate no, correspondent? No, 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 I don't, I'm not that smart enough. Not smart enough, but I met a lot of brilliant people from the labs of MIT and Caltech who are in this space, who are competing. Um, getting billions of new investments. The big sort of tech companies have a billion-dollar fund that pays companies like him to lock this carbon away. Sometimes you've heard of carbon offsets. If you fly right. a lot, well, I'll protect a forest. A lot of times you don't know if that forest is not going to burn or if it wasn't going to be cut down anyway. And so these kinds of ideas are verifiable. We know exactly how much he's pumping back down into the ground. That's his argument. If you can get the cost down, and we're going to pay for it as a society. That's sort of the next step. But I also talked to folks who want to spray sunscreen in the sky, high in the stratosphere, to try to cool and, and mimic the shading power of volcanoes and buy us a few years to keep, like, the worst tipping points from happening. That's where we are in this conversation. It is, it is fascinating. And I will say I love that you're finding people who are doing all the work because it gives me a little bit of hope. Uh, yeah, me too. Absolutely. You know, action is the best remedy for eco-anxiety. We, we're, we're capable. We just need to be put in the right direction. Yeah? Just put in the work a little bit. <laughs> That's right? Right, well, yeah. and you know, if you start that side hustle, you just let us know. Okay, I'll let you know. <laughs> Bill, thanks. All right. You tune in for a new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. It airs this Sunday, 8 p.m. on CNN. A monumental decision from the Supreme Court tonight affects women and girls across the country. Everything you need to know about this decision when it comes to abortion medication, that is next. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us this hour. On the night, the Supreme Court has protected access to a widely used abortion drug by freezing lower court rulings that place restrictions on medication abortion. It's important to note this is not the end here. So what does it mean? Well, it means the appeals process still has to play out. It's almost guaranteed, though, that the case will land back before the justices. In the meantime, however, it also means that the FDA's approval of the drug mefepristone remains in place. My panel is here, but first, I do want to check in with CNN Justice Correspondent Jessica Schneider, as well as Senior Medical Correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Good to see both of you tonight. So, Jessica, first of all, take us through this ruling and what the decision actually means tonight. Yeah, so Erica, this means that full access to Mifepristone will remain, as you mentioned, those, that, that appeals process plays out. So what that means practically, women can continue to take this up to 10 weeks pregnant. They can continue to receive it by mail. They can also get it prescribed via telehealth visits with their health care providers. And also the generic version, it's going to remain available. So this is exactly what the Biden administration was asking for. They wanted this stay in effect so these restrictions didn't take effect, and they warned 
that if there were restrictions imposed on the drug at this point, they said there would be confusion and chaos. So really now all of that has been avoided. And this appeals process will play out in a pretty speedy fashion in the Fifth Circuit. We've got briefs due next week and then arguments in less than a month on May 17th, Erica. So as we're watching for that on the legal side when it comes to the drug itself, Elizabeth, there's also been a lot of questions about the FDA's authority to make science-based decisions about medication going forward. You know, their approval is still there tonight, but what are the concerns about that process and the FDA's authority moving forward? Right. The concern, Erica, is that it would undo the way that it has been for many, many decades, which really makes sense. The FDA are scientists and they consult within themselves and with outside scientists when a company says, hey, I want to market this pill. It's the FDA. It's the scientists who get to make that decision, looking at all the evidence, spending months, sometimes years. And it's not supposed to work that one judge says, nah, I, I, I don't trust all those scientists. I want things done my way. So if that decision, if the Texas judge decision had been allowed to stand, there's, or if it is allowed to stand in the future, there's real concern that pharmaceutical companies are going to say, wait a second, why should we be investing millions of dollars in trying to get FDA approval when a single judge can just flip that around? That would impact their desire to try to you know, research and do, get more life-saving drugs on the market, and that would affect all of us. Erica? So when we look at this, too, two of the justices who justices who dissented here, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, um, Justice Alito actually actually said why. What did we hear from Justice Alito, Jessica? Yeah, so interestingly, the two justices, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, they were the only ones who dissented. But because of the way the order is structured here, we don't know exactly how the other seven voted, only that five definitely did side with the FDA. So Justice Alito wrote that four-page dissent. He talked about really two things. He talked about how the Supreme Court has previously been criticized for these kinds of stays. And he also tried to argue that there would be no harm if the restrictions went into effect, um, saying that at present, applicants are not entitled to a stay because they have not shown that they are likely to suffer irreparable harm in the interim. But what's really interesting here is that the FDA did argue that there would be major harm if these restrictions went into effect. They said women wouldn't be able to fully access the drug. There'd be chaos because there'd be confusion about the way it was administered. Justice Alito, though, disputed that that would happen and then even said that the FDA could just choose not to enforce these restrictions. He put it this way. He said the government, the Biden administration, the FDA has not dispelled legitimate doubts that it would even obey an unfavorable order in these cases, much less that it would choose to take enforcement action to which it has strong objections. So, Erica, in this four page dissent, it was very fiery from Justice Alito. Um, He dissented very forcefully. Justice Thomas just dissented, but with no writing. Um, So very forceful, but of course, a majority of the court giving the FDA and the Biden administration what it wanted here tonight. Elizabeth, as we look at all of this, so so this specifically was targeting mifepristone. It's one of two abortion medication drugs, which are often prescribed together. Is there a concern at all or discussion even within the medical community about coming after that other drug? 
You know, there are concerns that that people, the conservatives who don't like certain drugs, maybe because, for example, they used embryonic stem cells, uh, you know, way back in the day when they were developed, that conservatives might say, hey, we went after mefepristone. Let's go after all these other drugs, too. So, sure, the conservatives mm -hmm. could say, you know, we had some success with mefepristone. We got some good rulings uh, at a certain point. Let's try uh, misoprostol, which is the other drug. So, yes, there is concern that if there is victory, if, if the conservatives who, you know, were the plaintiffs in this case, had victory, that they might go on to attack other drugs as well and try to get those off the market. And just confirming to Elizabeth, for folks watching at home, what this does essentially is this does not change uh, what medical care providers, what OBGYNs can do. This is it was exactly the same as it was this morning is where we're at tonight. Mm -hmm. It, that is true, but there's one thing I want to say. If you live in a state where abortion is illegal, you couldn't get mefepristone anyhow. So doctors in your state wouldn't prescribe mefepristone to you anyhow. So none of this really matters mm -hmm. to you. You couldn't get it, you know, a month ago and you can't get it now. If you're in a state that allows abortion, you could get mefepristone, uh, you know, before and you can get it now. Elizabeth Cohen, Jessica Schneider, appreciate it as always. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in our panel now, journalist and founder of The Up and Up, Rachel Jimfaza, CNN senior political analyst, John Avlon, former Congressman Max Rose and former federal prosecutor, Katie Chertaski, as well as CNN political commentator, Kristen Soltis-Anderson. Good to see all of you tonight. So, Katie, let's pick up, if we could, there. I was really struck by, and Jessica laid out so well, the comments in that dissent from Justice Alito. Does that tell you anything about what it could look like if and likely when this ends up back in front of the justices. Well, it's a very interesting decision by the court, but it's really not, in my mind, inconsistent with the way that they've looked at FDA authority in the past. And as many people have pointed out, the Supreme Court has specifically said that they would defer to the FDA in making decisions about when medication is approved and the conditions under which it is dispensed. So in many ways, this opinion is very consistent with that history. And it also does allow the Supreme Court to stay out of the abortion business to a great extent like they said they wanted to do when they overturned Roe. So in my mind, legally speaking, the decision, maybe it telegraphs what they'll do when, when the case comes up, because it inevitably will come up once right. the Fifth Circuit rules on it. But in terms of what that decision might be, I mean, the court has said that they do defer to the agency's um, opinions on these medical matters. So I'm optimistic in that sense. You feel it'll stay that way. Max, is there any concern there has been you know, we were talking last hour about really the way we've seen the Democratic messaging ramp up, sure. certainly in the wake of jobs, but really just in the last couple of weeks, much of that messaging led by Vice President Harris, who's really been put out there, uh, you know, as the surrogate on this topic. Absolutely. Look, it's a winning issue for the Democratic Party. It, it is very clear that even amidst economic trends that are against the party, um, and even with President Biden not always having the most ideal polling numbers, so long as, I'm glad you find that funny, so long as this issue is at the forefront, Democrats believe that they, they have a fighting chance in elections. But what is shocking amidst all of this, because that's very clear fact what I just said, is the fact that the Republican Party continues to talk about this issue and continues to push extremist policies, particularly at the state level. And I think that is because their base is actually massively different than the majority of voters. And that fact and that fact alone may be why the Republican Party is on the way towards much more of a permanent minority status.
So, Kristen, I, I, I bet you'd love to respond to that because I know you're also looking at this as I mean, breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief tonight. Well, for many Republicans, they are not interested in the Supreme Court being viewed as a political football, as a political entity, as an arm of the Republican Party. The Supreme Court doesn't want to be viewed that way. And so this ruling is pretty consistent with that, with the sort of depoliticizing of the court of saying, let's just let the process play out. Let's preserve the status quo for now and see how this goes. Um, when it comes to the politics of this issue, the challenge that Republicans have been faced with is that prior to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, if you asked Americans, for instance, do you think that abortion is morally acceptable or unacceptable? An awful lot of Americans say they're not really comfortable with abortion. They don't like it. They don't celebrate it. But at the same time would say, but let's allow Roe versus Wade to stand. The falling of Roe put that as the central question. So when somebody is thinking about, am I pro-life or pro-choice? That question of do I like abortion or not, do I think it's okay, is less central to how they're thinking about that question. Now they're thinking, what do I think about the overturning of Roe versus Wade and these limits that may be going further than they were comfortable with on abortion throughout their states? That's why the politics of this have changed so dramatically and against Republicans at the ballot box. Rachel, when you look at this, right, so you're talking to young people as you're reporting on all these things. What are we missing from the conversation when we talk about what the conversation is right now? What is it among people your age? I appreciate you asking that. And I think, you know, young women, the young women I speak with, they're really scared because they don't know with, with whether this is going to be the last thing or the next thing that's going to come. And so this is the first generation in 50 years that's growing up without the federally protected right to an abortion. And for students, especially on college campuses, that's really daunting when they're grappling with what that means for on-campus sex life. These are day-to-day decisions that young people in states where abortion have has been banned are making about, you know, what what they're doing with their bodies and what is what they're comfortable doing, and that's now a decision that isn't necessarily in their own hands because lawmakers have stepped in and said that, you know, should something should you have an unexpected pregnancy or an unwanted pregnancy, like that decision is not going to be up to you. So I think, you know, you really have to think about on the day to day what this means for young people's lives and the way that they can interact with their peers. And and, and it's just very different than the way our parents grew up. And John, as you're looking at this in in the broader scope, we talk about how important this is going to be moving into 2024. We saw how important it was in 2022. What are you watching for when it comes to these conversations? Well, I, I'm always want to pay attention to what independents, what moderates are doing. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, Max touched on this. This is an issue where, um, you know, the, the a super majority of Americans had a broad, if uneasy, consensus, mm-hmm. right? That Clintonian formation of safe, legal, and rare. You had around, you know, 15% of Americans wanted a constitutional ban on abortion. 15% said there, said there shouldn't be any restrictions. But most folks were in the middle. Overturning Roe, that unprecedented step, all of a sudden makes Republicans... Uh, they, they look like a party that is about big government. They look like a party that's uh, hostile to individual freedom or at least self-determination within these, these, uh, the, the common sense structures that people have. And so I'm, I'm fascinated that Republicans are preoccupied by, you know, they got this generational win, something that activists have been pushing for within their party without public support. And now a lot of them are afraid to talk about it. They don't want to because they think it's bad politically, while other folks in their party want an even more maximalist position which they denied was ever their case when they were trying to overturn Roe. DeSantis. I wonder, too, Katie, as you look at all of this, even from a legal perspective, is there a more fulsome discussion where we are now, almost a year after Dobbs, about why and when women actually have abortions? Even when it comes to mifepristone, right? We've talked so much about it. 
What's important to note, too, is that it is used in miscarriages because when a woman miscarries, her body cannot always finish what needs to happen. And so this medication actually makes it easier for a woman. And so the realities of what it means and why a woman and perhaps along with her partner and or perhaps even her, you know, if she's a person of faith, then, then her faith leader, why they make these decisions. Has that conversation changed? Well, I think what strikes me the most about this ruling from the court is really what it does to put the FDA in complete control, in my mind, over the approval and the dissemination of of these drugs at any level. Because at the end of the day, the court really did mean that they did not want to be involved in the abortion business. And by this ruling, in my mind, the FDA is a political entity. And so the volatility of this issue is not going to change. It's going to keep going back and forth at extreme levels. And the Supreme Court just does not want to be involved with it. And and really, if there's going to be a challenge to an action of a federal agency, the court cannot get involved unless it's shown to be arbitrary and capricious. And so whether they interpret the Fifth Circuit's ruling in that regard is really going to be the big question here, because ultimately they can defer back and say, we defer to the federal agency and whatever administration is in power at that point might dictate what that federal agency's decisions truly are. So it really is quite significant what the court has done here, in my mind, in putting the power really back into the the political process and outside of the court's hands in many regards. Can the courts stay apolitical at this point? Is there anything about the courts that are apolitical? No. I mean, courts courts have never been political. I mean, excuse me, they've always been political. But I do think that what we're seeing with the current Supreme Court is Chief Justice Roberts making an attempt Mm -hmm. to show that they are above the fray. And we've seen that as the trend ever since they made their ruling on Obamacare. Now, what the challenge was from his perspective with the Dobbs decision was that that really tilted in the other direction. And I think now we're seeing a consistent effort to try to make some attempt to move it back in that direction that you just said. But the issue of abortion and the issue of rights in this country and the issue of a woman's right to make her own health care decisions will remain the most poignant and significant political issue, I believe, for years to come. Kristen, we saw, um, you know, you were saying in our our last hour, some Republicans have been caught flat-footed when they're asked specific questions um, over the last several weeks about abortion. Um, I noted Tim Scott is is definitely one of those. What does this change in terms of messaging, if anything, in terms of a united message for Republicans? Well, a lot of Republicans for a long time were able to say, look, I believe that life begins prior to when abortion is currently allowed. I think that Roe versus Wade is uh, was a poorly decided decision, but it is the law of the land. And so we'll do what we can to protect life by, uh, you know, creating uh, creating a situation where there are fewer abortions for other reasons. Maybe there are, uh, you know, we may offer uh, we, we create a culture that, that celebrates life and encourages people to, to celebrate parenthood. That is now gone. And now you can no longer say, well, I'm just going to defer to Roe. I don't like it, but it's there. Now everything is on the playing field. And so you had, for instance, somebody like Ron DeSantis who could say, hey, I ran in Florida on a 15-week abortion ban and I didn't get punished for it. Actually, you can pass a law like that and it's fine. But this is a very different conversation when you're talking about a six-week ban. It's really going to put that to test both in a general election context and in a Republican primary. Is that actually where a majority of Republicans want their party to go?
we'll be watching. All right, just ahead here next, do the Ten Commandments belong in public school classrooms? The Republican-controlled Texas Senate has passed a bill that would require public schools public schools to display the Ten Commandments in every classroom in a conspicuous place. What about the separation of church and state? Does that still apply? We'll discuss. The Texas Senate just passed a bill that would require public schools to display the Ten Commandments in classrooms across the state. Now, according to the bill, a public elementary or secondary school shall display in a conspicuous place in each classroom of the school a durable poster or a framed copy of the Ten Commandments. Has to be a specific size, even. The Texas State House will now consider that bill. If passed, it would go into effect as soon as September 1st, so in time for the 2023-24 academic year. Back now with my panel and joining us, Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason. So we did print this up just to give you a sense of this is something that could be in a classroom, right, along with, I guess, the rules of, you know, be kind and don't forget to return your library books and clean up after yourself. I have to say, when I first saw this, my first thought was, which I imagine a lot of people was, hey, we have this little thing called Ooh, separation yeah. of church and state. Did it all just go away? I mean, you took an oath to the Constitution at one point. Yeah, several Talk times us through in my this. life. I, I mean, uh, next they're going to put up signs, no Jews, Muslims, atheists allowed. I mean, this is, this is absurd. I'm a, amazed it passed. I'm no legal scholar, but I can't imagine that uh, this eventually would not get overturned in the court of law. But again, though, I go back to the politics of this and the point that you made er, you know, earlier about this, this majority that does exist in this country that is moderate and sensible, and that is not this. And so what we see yet again is this extremist Republican base that is dominating some state legislators and putting stuff like this out there And that's not politics that wins national elections by any sense of the word. It's also one of the things that struck me is that it's the Ten Commandments, right? It's not the Ten Commandments and what is it, the five principles of Buddhism? I'm probably getting that wrong. But it's not it's not saying because there is something really wonderful about teaching kids about all these different faiths that exist in the world. Yeah. But that's not happening. This is specifically Judeo-Christian, right? Old Testament, and some of the stuff, even one of the lawmakers argued, there was a Baptist leader who said, I was opposed to the bill by saying, telling the Washington Post, I should have had the right to introduce my daughter to the concepts of adultery and coveting one's spouse. It shouldn't be one of the first things she learns to read in her kindergarten classroom. I'm always trying to introduce my daughter to the concept of adultery. I think this is an important thing for any father. <laughs> this is, um, this TV. <laughs> is facially unconstitutional according to the current jurisprudence of the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. There was a case in 1980 called Stone versus Graham that was about Kentucky mm-hmm. making it this exact same order. You must put a Ten Commandments up on every schoolhouse wall. And you can't do it because there's a test from 1971 in the Lemon v. Kurtzman case where they say if it has... If you do something like this, it has to have a secular purpose. It has to have your test, right? Like, let's have some other codes of conduct here. Let's have Robert Rules of Order. Who knows? But let's have a a context of this and teach it. Sounds great to me. Mm -hmm. Um, There isn't any other context for this. And also, the other part of the test is, is it expressly proselytizing or stating that this one religion is the source of the moral code? That's in Governor Abbott's quotes 
He's out there saying, like, we need to do this to, like, restore morals in our state and in our society. And this is a good beginning. That's not going to pass muster when this goes to court. To your point, too, when we look at when we look at independence, when we look at moderates, there is, I mean, this is supposed to be a country of freedoms, right? There are a number of people who are not just independents and moderates, right? But a number of people who would say freedom of religion also means you have freedom from religion. That's why it was founded. So the government couldn't say to you, this is what you have to believe. Are they right? They're absolutely right to the extent that the founders were very clear on the fact that there was going to be no state-sanctioned faith, right? This wasn't just James Madison talking about the separation of church and state. This is something that George Washington uh, believed very deeply. Um, But that didn't mean you wanted to run faith entirely out of the public square. Sure. Right? I mean, faith was a fundamental foundational building block in terms of creating uh, moral people in a democratic republic. But this so obviously, as Matt points out, crosses a line. Mandating it in public schools, every public school classroom, it's obviously a play to the base move. It's a bit of a dare. But the fact that you can't say for sure that the Supreme Court wouldn't find a way to rationalize it. It's a big question. That, 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 that's, that's the underlying issue. It is a great moral document, but you can't exclusively have one religion's uh, articles of faith mandated in every classroom. I, I don't want to put you on the hook for all young people because that's not <laughs> fair to you, obviously. But I do wonder, as you're in your reporting, as you're talking to people, how important is a public discussion of faith? So I think that it's really important that young people have the ability to talk about whatever they want to talk about. And that's something that when I'm talking with young people who are current students, they don't want to be told what they cannot say. They also don't want to be told what they should say or what they should be taught or seen. I mean, just if you look at this at a national level, today in Florida, where the government has made it very clear what they want out of the classroom, there were student-led, youth-led walkouts at over 300 high school and college campuses. Um, It was called the Walkout to Learn. And this is just one example of young people pushing back against uh, the Florida Republicans going in and saying, you know, the bill dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill, what you can and cannot say in the classroom. And young people are responding to that very fiery and passionately. And so I think with this Texas example, when it comes to the politics of this, young people are going to have a field day because this just riles up young people who don't want to be told what they can and cannot see in their classrooms. And they're then going to demonstrate. They're going to march. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this also picks up attention across the country, too. Kristen, how do you see this playing out ultimately? Well, Texas is one of those states that is reliably Republican, and Democrats have been looking at it for a long time, hoping that they can flip it blue or at least kind of purple-ish. And I think it's important to point out that on the one hand, you've had moments like, for instance, recall uh, Wendy Davis in the Texas legislature. She did that. um, She did that filibuster in opposition to abortion legislation. Mm -hmm. And that was something that, you know, folks said at the time, well, gosh, this is the moment when all of a sudden people are going to realize Texas has gone too far to the right and there's going to be backlash. And there wasn't. At the same time, very slowly, Texas has been creeping, if not purple, maybe magenta. Um, right now, if you look at like the 2008 election, Texas broke uh, for John McCain by 12 points. Um, only broke for Donald we, Trump by six last time around. So we'll watch it closely. Appreciate it from all of you. Um, if you've been paying attention to what's happened in the news this week, stay tuned. You might win the quiz. Mm.
Let's turn it over now to our friends at HBO. Every Friday after Real Time with Bill Maher, Bill and his guests answer viewer questions about topics in the national conversation. So we're bringing you this lively discussion first every Friday night. So here's Overtime with Bill Maher. Okay, welcome <laughs> to, uh, oh my gosh, Hi, CNN. I know I'm dressed a little strange, but we were doing a sketch at the end of our show. You'll have to watch it. Okay, we have psychotherapist and best-selling author Astaire Perel is over here. We have Brown University professor and host of the Glenn Show podcast, Glenn Lowry. And we have the co-host of the Foreign Affairs podcast, American Prestige, Daniel Bessner. Okay. Uh, what does the panel make of SCOTUS's, that's a Supreme Court ruling today, preserving access to birth control pills? Yes, that happened just before we went on the air. So that's the uh, birth control pill that that one judge in Texas, I don't know how that works, I don't think I ever will, said, okay, I'm a judge in Texas, the whole country can't have birth control pills. <laughs> And it went to the Supreme Court, and I guess they threw it back to the lower court. I understand Clarence Thomas and Alito dissented, okay, and said, no, no birth controls for you. What are your thoughts? Well, they made the right call. So Clarence Thomas made the wrong call. I'd have to say so in this case. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not privy to the opinions, but um, I think a single judge overruling national regulation in that way is not the way you want to run a railroad. So. What are your thoughts as a uh, sex therapist on the uh, pill that uh, people take to not have a, a baby? I think it is problematic to bring politics into a conversation that should happen between a woman and her physician, of which politicians know nothing about. Okay. All right. For that answer, you've earned a bonus question. <laughs> this is for editor. Is there such a thing as a soulmate? Oh. So the interesting thing about soulmate is that for all of history, it meant God, the one and only. Hmm. Today, people would That's like That's even their... sillier. <laughs> but go ahead. For some people, that oh. had a great meaning. <laughs> but to turn our partner into a soulmate to demand from our partner the very things that we used to expect from religion, transcendence, meaning, ecstasy, wholeness, that is a whole new order that has never been part of what committed to marriage, committed relationships or marriage ever was about. Interesting. Boys? Boys? Makes a lot of sense to me, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, should we consider the SpaceX rocket launch a success or a failure? What does it say about the state of American innovation, I, I think it's a success. The, the fact that it failed is part of the process. The fact that there was nobody on board. Yeah, I mean, you got to break some rockets to make an omelet. You know, it's, nev it's never going to work the first time. I mean, to me, if we're trying to get space travel, why are we relying solely on private corporations to do so? Uh, I think, that, historically speaking, the na this nation has made its great uh, greatest advancements in, in technology when we pooled resources together and there's some form of central planning. Uh, I think if this is something that we truly decide democratically that we want, then that's how we should do should it. Should we want it? 
I mean... I don't see the reason, necessarily. I don't either. Yeah. I mean, I'm a Musk fan, generally, although he sometimes makes it hard. <laughs> Some uh, the, big time. Yeah. Yeah, if it's but, a private company, if they can't make a go of it, they'll go bankrupt. If they can make a go of it and make money from it, then they'll make money from it. I mean, you know... Yeah, I, I just... I, don't, I mean, he's being a guest on our show next week, by the way, Elon. Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, and I want to talk to him. I've never been on that page of why we should go to Mars. I mean, however bad we ruin the Earth, it cannot be worse than a place that has no air, is 200 degrees below zero, and a long way away, and has six-month dust storms. And you have to live underground, and there's Isn't radiation. is the ambition of wanting to do something as audacious and remarkable as that an expression of the human spirit? Why shouldn't we celebrate that? From, an, from another perspective, though, you might see it as a rejection of humanity. If, even I'm no big fan of robber barons, but at least they would do things like pay for operas, pay for museums. It seems like this generation of oligarchs just wants to escape Earth or live forever, which I think is a pretty grim, yeah! uh, a pre, a pretty grim take on this. Well, I mean, he, he would say he wants to escape Earth for a very good reason that is altruistic, that because he thinks this planet is probably going to be, I can't say the word, but rat screwed. Uh, <laughs> CNN, I clean it up, you see. Um, and we need this other planet to go to. But I, I feel like if, we, if it gets that bad on Earth, I, I mean... Yeah, I think it's I, done then. Yeah. Right. But w one thing I do agree with Elon on is, uh, I, hope, I hope we'll talk about it next week, also is uh, AI being a threat. I mean, he and a thousand scientists and important people signed a letter a couple of weeks ago that said we should put a pause on AI. And this week I see there's a, a collaboration between Drake and The Weeknd that is not real. AI did it. And it looks like you can put the complete music bu business out of business because you don't need them anymore. So anyone who thinks, I think, that this AI thing isn't moving way too fast for us to deal with, I, I think is kidding themselves. And I think he's right. We should put a pause on it. But in, in this situation, who is the we? Who would be able to make that determination? I, I feel like you'd have to get some sort Wait, of... Wait, you were for the government all night. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> I think we need Something to... Something you don't want the government to get involved. No, it was no, a government, exactly, government... Yeah. No, I think I don't exactly know exactly what else needs can, to happen. Yeah. I joke about it in class. I tell my students, I know you're writing your papers with Chad GPT. Guess what? I'm grading them with Chad GPT. <laughs> that's hysterical. Okay, uh, is the future of democracy truly at stake in the U.S., as some contend? Is there really an emerging fascist movement? Well, yeah. Don't you watch the news? Come on, you're watching CNN. Yes, there is. But no? All right, next question. I, 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 I would disagree about identifying it specifically as fascist, even though there is a far-right authoritarian movement. I don't think it meaningfully mirrors the fascist movements of Italy or Germany in the 20s and the 30s. And I don't no. think it's a particularly mobilizing thing to do, but I, I appreciate the tenor of the question, and I agree with it. I mean, fascism was fascism. Yes. I mean, we shouldn't throw words around casually. Exactly. That there is a word that people... Democracy. People do throw that word around very casually. But and, there's ne and there's never any, like, specific definition of it that I know of. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I think that... 
um, if you're going to go back to compare Italy-Germany, it took one year for it to go from an authoritarian situation to a more fascistic situation. And you know it when you start to experience a society in which there is a constant polarization, no complex issues can actually hold their, their polarities, and it becomes an either-or, you or me, right or wrong, black and white. That system of culture breeds this. Preach, sister. Okay. What does the panel think of the video of the Dalai Lama asking a young boy to suck his tongue? Let oh, me gosh. ask the sex expert about that. I mean, I, I was surprised that more criticism didn't come the Dalai's way or the Lama's way. <laughs> Whatever it was. Asking a, imagine if the Pope did that. What if the Pope said, suck my tongue, kid? I mean, we'd immediately be saying, well, this guy has been in this pedophilia situation that the church, of course, has paid billions yeah. of dollars because they were, and he just forgot he wasn't inside anymore, and, and that's how bad it is. He said it in public. I mean, how, what do you make of that, the Dalai Lama saying that? I don't make. I listen. <laughs> I listen. I try to look at situations in context. I keep my mouth shut and don't just jump and with judgment. And um, Suck I my think... tongue, kid? You know, you know, I, I judge that. I'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm judging no that. You have no idea what starts before. You have no idea. Start before. What, what situation is it okay for a strange 80-year-old no, 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 no. man say to a six-year-old, suck my tongue? None. None. None, well, but well, I don't know. I don't... I, you ask me, all I can say is I will not speak out on situations like this, none of them, before I have an idea of what happened here, what happened there. I've seen enough. Look, I work uh, with couples. Uh, describe <laughs> what happened here that would make this okay. Like you're saying, something I don't know could have led up to the suck no, the tongue comment. No, and that's, that, that's not the point. The well, point is that... it seems like your point. No, I think that before you jump, just... To, to me, before I jump, I take another couple of minutes to get a bigger sense of what else is going on here. That's I, all I, I, I say. Okay. <laughs> is there any cultural Yes, that's of course what I'm thinking about. I mean, do we know what it means? I mean, was it sexual? Was it, I mean, we don't know. I, 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 that I, is a question I have, but I don't have the answer for yeah. it. What's the cultural context I, here I, that we are no. quick to jump on? It's ridiculous. Like, we wouldn't have heard of that by now. Oh, yes, in Buddhism, they suck the kids' tongues. <laughs> it's crazy. I'll throw it back to you, CNN. <laughs> <laughs> And you can catch Real Time with Bill Maher Friday nights on HBO at 10 p.m. And then, of course, Overtime right here on CNN Friday nights at 1130. Up next here, it is the moment that you've been waiting for, the Friday night news quiz. John Avalon is scared. Friday night means time for a little news quiz. So let's see what you and our esteemed panelists here know about the week's news stories. I've been I've been keeping them in this folder because Uh-oh. I'm told some people like to peek at the answers. So, friends, question number one. An Ohio, I should have brought my reading glasses, an Ohio fiscal officer <laughs> went on a $300,000 taxpayer money spending spree. Purchases included... Is it A, a new sports car, B, a vintage recorder, or C, a wildebeest? God, I hope so it's We've got a, we've got a wildebeest, wildebeest. we've got a sports car, 
And a wow, one of each. And the answer is C. Ooh. The wildebeest. Very What's nice. Yeah. Doesn't, the wildebeest. doesn't everybody need a wildebeest? I think he is. He thinks he's winning right now. That's, what, that's who he is. So what are you doing, Max? All right, number two, Florida. Apologize for sending an emergency alert test at what time? Was it A, 2 a.m., B, 11, 11 p.m., or C, 4.45 a.m.? Hmm. What was the second one there? 11, 11 p.m.? Yep. That's it. That's it. Two 11, 11s make a wish. Third wish. And the answer, in fact, is 4.45. I'm out of here now. Avalon, this killing it. This hardwired. Okay. All right. Wait, wait, wait. People, we're not done. We don't get discouraged like that. If he was looking, there will be there will be repercussions. We don't cheat here. Cheaters never win. Winners never cheat. What prompted a response from the Secret Service on White House grounds? This was one of my favorite stories, actually. Was it A, a toddler who squeezed through the fence? B, POTUS's dog tried to flee, or C, a raccoon ambush. I want it to be C, but yeah, it's, it's got to go with you. It mind. is, in fact, A. We have yes. three A's. Well done, people, most of you. Uh, a New Jersey bar owner won what with a lottery ticket bought at his business? $1,000 a week for life, lifetime supply of beer, 25K. Oh, three A's for the win. Sorry, the beer would have been good, though. Beer would have been. But you can buy your beer with $1,000 a week for life. Governor DeSantis suggests that building what next to Disney World? A shelter, a prison, an orange grove. This one is making too much And there you go. Cue the orange jumpsuits. It was a joke. Okay. (laughs) Bad joke. Here is another one that was not a joke. A school superintendent candidate claims he lost his job after saying, y'all are crazy. Ladies, bless your heart. <laughs> I love bless your heart. Oh, it's one of my favorite phrases, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So good. All right. No, you all got it, but wouldn't bless your heart have been better? Yeah, I threw that one in to throw you off. I'm glad it worked. Okay, and finally, Dominion and Fox News settled their lawsuit this week for $787.5 million, $1.6 billion, or $562 million. It is a good thing we all got that one correct, my friends. Well done. Stay with us. We'll be right back. (laughs) All right, it's basically the weekend. We have like three more minutes. So in that time, it had us thinking on the staff here. Some people wondering if there's such a thing as too much wine. Turns out for some nuns in the Netherlands, the answer is... Actually, yes. After almost a decade of working their winery, a convent made more wine than they can sell. 64,000 bottles. Why? Well, they said it was the sunniest season ever. Gave them double their usual yield. So now they're getting creative to get the word out. You know, like on CNN Tonight. They've got a, quote, beautiful white blend of fresh rosé. And you can feel good about your purchase because the proceeds go to the maintenance of the monastery. If you're watching here in the U.S., of course, you might be out of luck. The wines can only be sent to customers in the Netherlands or the United Kingdom. So, you know, you could just tell your friends there. So there's that. You could help the nuns and preserve the monastery. I was, you know, it would go great with that wine. What? Some beef from the ranching nuns in Colorado. <laughs> Years ago, I did a story on, they were wonderful. They're Benedictine mun, nuns oh. in Colorado, and they raise cattle. That is, and the beef is highly sought after. Like, you got to get on a really? list for it. Yeah. Mm. They, All kinds of things happening. Everything it takes to raise cattle, because that can be pretty gory. There, I 
I guess, yeah. You, know, you, didn't, you didn't ask about the... I didn't phrase one. any of those questions that way. No, no I didn't. But next but, time, maybe I should take you on that trip and but, you can ask those no, but, probing but, but, questions. But I, I like the, the wine-making nuns. I think, you know, that's... that's Monks a- make beer. Wines make... Absolutely. I mean, nuns Go make ahead. wine. But did, did they fail? I mean, are they... They didn't sell. No, they were just having a hard time getting rid of it. They, they were, were too successful at making it, but not good enough sell at all. selling it. So now, well, you know, so maybe they need a little sales help. Dutch block I'm, I'm just wondering if another religious affiliation would have been different. I mean, this is this yeah. is very, I mean, this, 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 would this have happened in the synagogue? Would this have, I mean, who knows? I think it just proves that uh, the, the Netherlands is a beer country, not a wine country. That may be it. Sure. That, that may be the real, yeah, the that, that could be it. Can people go to visit to get the wine? That's a great Probably. question. I don't know that answer. Maybe I'm going to find out. Uh, I'll let Allison idea. know. She can let you all know okay. when she's back. Um, all right. I think that's it. I think it's actually time for a glass of wine. Yes. If it's not yes. too late. Sadly, we couldn't get it here from the Netherlands, but maybe we have a stash backstage. Maybe we don't. We'll never tell. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Erica Hill in for Allison Camrata tonight. Stay tuned. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.